Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Suspended Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton could lose his job as he faces a historic impeachment trial tomorrow. How did he get here? An illegal immigrant in New York City is let out without bail after a conflict with a police officer. While Israel is planning to expel some immigrants, find out why. A packed September ahead in Congress with can't-miss deadlines on funding and an anticipated impeachment inquiry vote. What to expect as we head into fall? President Biden courting middle-class voters on Labor Day as a new poll says his 2024 run could be in danger. What he says amid concerns over his age and the economy. Italy is planning a graceful exit from China's international Belt and Road Initiative. Why the departure and why does it matter to the U.S.? The Black Sea grain deal could soon resume between Russia and Ukraine. This as a major shakeup takes place within Ukraine's defense leadership. And Steve Harwell, the former lead singer of Smash Mouth, has died at the age of 56. His manager says the artist passed away peacefully at home. In just one day, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton will face an impeachment trial. He's only the third official in Texas history to be impeached. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards reviews how he got here. The Texas Senate is set to gather as a high court Tuesday to consider the impeachment of Attorney General Ken Paxton. Paxton, only the third official in Texas history to face impeachment, has denied rumors that he will resign before the trial. The trial comes after a Republican-led House in May overwhelmingly voted to adopt 20 articles of impeachment presented by a committee. The chair moves that the committee adopt the articles of impeachment against Warren Kenneth Paxton, attorney general of the state of Texas. The committee's report included accusations of bribery, retaliation against whistleblowers and obstruction of justice. For example, whistleblowers from his own staff reported Paxton to the FBI for suspected corruption in 2020 over his alleged dealings with a donor and real estate investor. The whistleblowers who had been fired or resigned sued and Paxton struck a $3.3 million settlement. Paxton has denied any wrongdoing and has called the impeachment a sham. Texas GOP Chairman Matt Rinaldi told Steve Bannon's war room that Paxton is being targeted. Texas House is one of the only, I think it's the only legislative body in the United States where the majority party, Republicans here, voluntarily share leadership with Democrats. When they bring Democrats in on leadership, they make deals. They have tremendous influence over what happens. And one of the things that they demanded was taking down our Republican attorney general. Rinaldi said Democrats blamed Paxton for the January 6th Capitol breach because he was filing lawsuits challenging the 2020 election results. Democrat State Representative James Tallarico voted for the impeachment. After the vote in May, he said this about Paxton. And I hope folks recognize that corrupt public officials like Ken Paxton are the rot at the core of our broken political system and holding them accountable is our job as elected officials. In a separate matter, several attorneys filed a complaint against Paxton, accusing him of violations of professional conduct rules in connection with Paxton's election lawsuit against Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin.
If the complaint is successful, Paxton could be suspended from the practice of law or be permanently disbarred. Tiffany? Israel plans to deport thousands of immigrants after they participated in violent protests. Meanwhile, in New York City, an illegal immigrant was reportedly released without bail and is back on the streets after a conflict with a police officer. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. Israel is expelling some refugees who came from the African country of Eritrea. The Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced the move on Sunday. The immigrants in question participated in this violent protest on Saturday. One side gathered to celebrate the anniversary of the 30-year rule of Eritrea's dictator. The other side was there to oppose his rule. Israel now wants to deport the rioters, but international law says Israel can't forcibly send migrants back to a country where their life or liberty may be at risk. However, Netanyahu says it's hard for me to understand why we would have a problem with those who declare that they support the regime. They certainly cannot claim refugee status. Meanwhile, in New York City, an illegal immigrant was reportedly released from jail on Sunday after a conflict with police. The New York Post reports she was arrested for attempted assault on Thursday. This was her second arrest after felony assault charges against her in July. If you're illegal, somehow and some, for some reason, these people get a pass. Victor Avila is a former supervisory special agent with ICE and Homeland Security. He's currently running for Congress, aiming to represent a district in southern Texas along the border. How should we treat uh, immigrants who commit crimes, especially in cities like New York, which is, as you know, a sanctuary city? Well, listen, I'm a law and order person. Uh, it really, uh, when it comes to uh, enforcing our laws, it shouldn't matter where you come from. The New York immigrant was reportedly released from jail because the charges are not bail eligible in the Big Apple. Bail reform policies that they have in place have affected everyone. But on top of that, if you happen to be illegal, you somehow get an additional pass to continue to stay in this country. Avila says possible violence is just one of the downsides of an open border. Others are fentanyl coming into the country and more. The foreign policy aspect, I'm talking about China, uh, Venezuela, Cuba, Russia, and the impact that they have and influence, guess through where? Through Mexico. The Biden administration recently expanded legal pathways to come into the country in an attempt to bring order back to immigration. Arian Pastar, NTD News. On the heels of this Labor Day holiday weekend, lawmakers will be heading into a packed September schedule with consequential deadlines and brewing political drama over an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more on what to expect when Congress is back in session. Lawmakers are back in D.C. after a month-long recess. Senators are coming here tomorrow at 3 p.m., while House lawmakers are coming back next week. And there are serious disagreements right now about how to fund the government to avoid a government shutdown before the end of the month. The Senate Appropriations Committee has already passed their government funding bills at much higher spending levels than some House Republicans are willing to accept. And adding to this issue is the fact that the White House has requested $40 billion in emergency 
emergency aid for natural disaster relief, border management, and Ukraine aid, which will also be difficult for some House Republicans to swallow. And some Republicans are already drawing a red line in the sand. Congressman Chip Roy, as well as 14 others, are saying that they're going to oppose any spending bill that funds the Department of Homeland Security without making changes to border policy. Meanwhile, Speaker Kevin McCarthy says that if he cannot get a consensus within the Republican Party, as well as a consensus with the Democrats, he could push a continuing resolution that is a short-term government funding bill to avoid a shutdown by the end of this month, trying to make the case sort of with his Republican colleagues that if the government does shut down and they do choose to risk this, it could also pause their investigations, including those probes, into the Biden family, which right now are on the verge of becoming an impeachment inquiry. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has described taking this step towards impeachment inquiry as natural. Meanwhile, Chairman of the Judiciary Jim Jordan says that he feels that the House is inclined to have this vote at some point during this month. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A new poll finds President Biden's re-election bid could be in danger due to voters' concerns over his age and the economy. That's as the president traveled to Philadelphia on Labor Day today to tout his economic record. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. On this Labor Day, President Biden is seeking to appeal to middle-class voters by casting himself as a pro-union common man focused on the economy. Folks, in this Labor Day, let me tell you what we're celebrating. We're celebrating jobs, good-paying jobs, jobs you can raise the family on, union jobs. All my time in public office, I've been referred to as middle-class Joe. That's who I am. Again, traveling to Philadelphia today, President Biden today also took aim at former President Trump and calling him the last guy. When the last guy was here, you were shipping jobs to China. Now we're bringing jobs home from China. But it's unclear how much the public is convinced that Bidenomics is working. A new poll released Monday by the Wall Street Journal found that 59% of voters disapprove of Biden's handling of the economy, with nearly three in four voters say that inflation is headed in the wrong direction. Perhaps even more worrisome for Biden the polls finding that Biden is tied with Trump in a potential 2024 rematch at both 46% of support. And when it comes to age, more than 70% of voters say that Biden is too old to run again, while only less than 50% say that Trump is too old. But Biden apparently has been insisting that for those who are concerned, they should just watch him. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. With the group of 20 summit just days away, a highly anticipated meeting between President Biden and China Xi Jinping might fizzle out. Biden said he was disappointed over reports that his Chinese counterpart won't show up for the meeting in India. Are you disappointed that President Xi is not going to the G20? How do you explain that? I am disappointed. I'm going to get the same Beijing confirmed that Chinese Premier Li Qiang will attend the summit in New Delhi this week, but didn't answer whether Xi Jinping will appear, following reports last week that he could skip the event. The last meeting between Biden and Xi was at the G20 summit in Indonesia last year. Biden's latest comment was made on Sunday after he told reporters he looked forward to visiting India and Vietnam. Ties between the U.S. and China remain fraught, despite Washington's visits this year and a bid to restart talks. Meanwhile, India and China remain locked in a standoff along the border. Beijing recently angered its neighbors with a new national map that reaffirms claims to disputed territories. 
Italy is reportedly planning to exit China's international infrastructure program known as the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. For a look at the reasons behind the departure and the possible long-term implications, we spoke with Antonio Graceffo, China economic analyst and author of Beyond the Belt and Road, China's Global Economic Expansion. Antonio Graceffo, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Tiffany. It seems Italy may leave China's Belt and Road Initiative. Many groups in Italy want them to leave to begin. Why is it important to the U.S. whether Italy stays or leaves? Well, basically, when, when Italy originally uh, wanted to join the Belt and Road, it was because their economy is in so much trouble. They've had three recessions in the past 10 years, and they thought they could boost their trade by joining the Belt and Road. And then by the time Italy signed, Europe is already starting to turn away from, from China. Now, for Biden at this moment and the EU, the, the EU and, and Biden are pretty much on the same side now in terms of their China policy, that they're really seeing China more as an adversary rather than just a competitor, in which case they need everybody on board. And having Italy, you know, as a member of the BRI, weakens the G7, weakens uh, the EU policy towards China. And to your point, Italy is the only G7 member that joined the Belt and Road. And in 2019, when they did, that sent shockwaves through the West. Why was it such a big deal? Well, I mean, it was the only major economy. It was not only the only G7, it was the only major economy to join the BRI. And for uh, China, it was a huge win. You know, it was a it was a an inroad into Europe. And, um, you know, then China was able to say to the other, come on, even Italy joined, you know, you should join. And the other interesting thing is that when the UK left the EU, Italy became the number three economy in Europe. So you're talking about just a major, you know, as, as much as if from an American standpoint, you look at Italy and you go, well, it's not very powerful economically, but honestly, it's the third uh, largest economy in Europe. That's a big deal. And China was able to tout that to everybody. And by being a member of the Belt and Road, what leverage did that give China then? Well, that gave China great leverage um, because then... First of all, China was able to increase their exports to Italy. And this is the main reason why the country is leaving. Aside from the geopolitical issues, is that Italy is absolutely not seeing any economic benefit from joining the BRI. Um, uh, the uh, exports of China into Italy have increased by 51%, while Italian exports to China have only increased by, I believe, 23 or 26%. So China has got the lion's share of that benefit. Uh, the other shocking thing is that Chinese FDI into Italy is now one twentieth, roughly one twentieth of what it was before Italy joined BRI. So there's no benefit at all to Italy. And to your point, Italy's foreign minister is saying that the deal had, quote, failed to meet Italian expectations. But he's also saying that Italy still wants to work with China. So where do you see that relationship going? That is the problem. Everybody wants to sort of, you know, they, they want to placate China enough that they can have a, um, you know, relationship with China, amicable relationship, continue to trade and invest. But at the same time, nobody wants China to take over the world. And they definitely realize that China is an adversary. The foreign minister is now in Beijing right now. So I guess he has to be a bit more diplomatic. And he has a very difficult task. He has to maintain the relationship with China. But at the same time, say to China, you know, we're pulling out of the BRI. 
And Antonio, in terms of geopolitics, you mentioned earlier President Biden, the EU, they're all quite on the same page now. So if Italy does leave the Belt and Road Initiative, what kind of message is that sending to China? How big of a blow is it? I think it's a huge blow. It's a huge symbolic blow. It may not have any economic effect, but it's a huge, um, let's say, a diplomatic setback for China because, you know, in June, the G7 met and the theme of the meeting was de-risking from China. And the concept of de-risking is basically we don't want to say decoupling. We want to continue to trade with China, want to continue to have a relationship with them. However, we don't want China to gobble us up. And we recognize that that is China's goal. And um, having Italy, you know, with one foot in and one foot out, basically, was a benefit for China. But now we have the entire G7 outside of the Belt and Road, the entire G7 de-risking from China. Uh, that is huge. Antonio Graceffo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. The Black Sea grain deal between Russia and Ukraine could soon resume. That's according to Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan. He spoke with Russian President Vladimir Putin earlier today. Following the meeting, Erdogan said it would soon be possible to revive the agreement. The United Nations and Turkey helped broker the deal last year. Its goal is to get Ukrainian grain to the world market during the war. Russia quit the deal in July, complaining that its own food and fertilizer exports faced serious obstacles. Erdogan and the UN are both trying to get Putin to return to the deal. Putin said Russia could do so, but only if the West stopped restricting Russian agricultural exports from reaching global markets. A major shakeup is happening within Ukraine's military. The country's defense minister is now stepping down after 22 months on the job. This comes amid allegations of corruption within the ministry. Hindi's Jason Perry has the latest. Ukraine's Minister of Defense, Alexei Reznikov, submitted his resignation on Monday. He has overseen the Russia-Ukraine war for the last 22 months. He posted his resignation letter on X. In the letter, he praised Ukraine's fight against Russia. And he also highlighted his ministry's ability to secure military aid, which has equated to billions of dollars worth of Western weapons. His departure comes after months of corruption allegations against Ukraine's Ministry of Defense, and that led to public calls for Reznikov's resignation, although he was not personally implicated by any corruption allegations. Ukraine's Ministry of Defense has faced accusations of corruption in multiple areas, ranging from recruitment bribes to military medical exemptions to even food and clothing procurement. Reznikov's departure is not expected to have a big impact on military operations. Ukrainian residents gave their opinions on the recent move. I believe it's a timely resignation. There were many media reports saying that his ministry was involved in corruption in the area of procurement. I did not hear from him any reasonable explanations when he talked on TV or online. I liked the way he behaved and what he did. There were some scandals, and the resignation is probably connected to them. But there was no evidence. I don't know exactly. I like the new candidate for the defense minister position, Umarov. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky on Sunday proposed Rustem Umarov to be Ukraine's next minister of defense. He's currently in charge of managing state-owned assets. He's also a Crimean Tatar, an ethnic group originally from the Crimea region. That's the peninsula that Russia annexed from Ukraine in 2014. And Umarov may soon find himself faced with very complex and crucial decisions.
For example, Ukraine on Monday said Russian drones had blown up overnight in the territory of NATO member Romania, and Ukraine's foreign minister said they have photos to prove it. If true, this could have long-lasting consequences for all parties involved. However, Romania's foreign minister said Romania was not hit by Russian drones or debris in the overnight strike. Jason Perry, NTD News. Next, we have some sad news for rock and roll. Steve Harwell, the former frontman of the 90s rock band Smash Mouth, has passed away at the age of 56. His manager said that the singer died peacefully this morning at his home in Boise, Idaho. Harwell entered hospice care for liver failure this past weekend. He has been battling with health issues for decades and was forced to leave the band in 2021. Harwell co-founded the Smash Mouth back in 1994. The band's hits include All Star, Walking on the Sun, and I'm a Believer, featured in the movie Shrek. A festival turned disastrous. Tens of thousands attending the Burning Man Festival are now stuck in the northern Nevada desert. That's after a late summer rainstorm turned the once hard-packed ground into puddles. Organizers began allowing vehicles to take off at 2 p.m. local time as the road started to dry out. But as of this afternoon, around 64,000 attendees were still there. Some had already left since pre-dawn with a bit of struggle through the slop. And a few, including celebrities, were spotted walking out on foot. One person has died at the event, reportedly unrelated to the weather. Authorities are investigating but have yet to identify the cause. Coming up, New Hampshire Governor Christian Nunu said he expects former President Trump to be on his state's ballot. That's after calls to challenge his eligibility using the 14th Amendment. A Florida judge strikes down a congressional map as unconstitutional, saying it dilutes minority voting power. And is China actually avoiding war with the U.S.? Democratic candidate RFK Jr. says so, but we'll speak with an analyst who says that's dead wrong in just a minute here on NTD News. Welcome back. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu says he expects to see Trump's name on his state's ballot. That's despite those who want to challenge the former president's eligibility. I see no reason why he wouldn't be on that ballot. I suppose if someone wants to try to litigate it, it's not really a New Hampshire issue. They're litigating it against the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and therefore would be applicable to all 50 states. So, no, I fully expect the, the former president to be on our ballot. Some Trump opponents, both conservative and liberal, have mentioned using a provision of the 14th Amendment to prevent Trump from running. A Trump campaign spokesperson has said this would be, quote, blatant election interference. Section 3 of the amendment disqualifies anyone who has supported or engaged in insurrection or rebellion while in office. President Trump's campaign has already emailed supporters for funding support over any potential 14th Amendment cases. But Trump faces no insurrection or rebellion charges in any of his indictments. And no January 6th defendant has been charged with insurrection either. A Florida judge has struck down congressional district lines approved by Governor Ron DeSantis. He ruled the map was unconstitutional because it watered down minority voting power in the region. 
The map will be returned to the legislature for a redrawing. The Fair District's amendment says lawmakers cannot redraw district maps, which diminish minority voters' ability to elect. In this case, the redrawing affected a seat that was formerly held by Representative Al Lawson, a black Democrat. Lawson lost the district in the 2022 midterm election following the redistricting process. Plaintiffs include Black Voters Matter, Equal Ground, Florida Rising, and the League of Women Voters of Florida. They filed the case in April 2022 after DeSantis signed the new congressional maps into law. The DeSantis administration is now expected to appeal the ruling all the way to the Florida Supreme Court. At a campaign event in Hampton, New Hampshire, GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy took a question from a 10-year-old. She asked about Taiwan and China. Let's hear the response from the 2024 candidate. I have a question, sir. I'm excited for it. Hi. Um, when you're president, what are you going to do about, like, what are you going to do when China attacks Taiwan? Oh, that's a tough, that's like the toughest question all day. Came from, what's your, what's your, what's your name? Grace. Grace, and how old are you? Ten. Let's give Grace a round of applause. I love that. I respect that. So my top job is, I've got a few elements of my foreign policy, and it relates to the direct answer to your question. Declare economic independence from China, including Taiwan. Make sure that we don't start World War III and actually advance American interests. I'm saying that we reject the one China policy and strategic ambiguity. We will defend Taiwan. And then after we achieve semiconductor independence, we resume strategic ambiguity, our current position. How are the other presidential candidates handling the China issue? And what message should the U.S. be sending to China? To discuss this, we spoke with the author of The China Crisis. James Gari, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Thanks, Stephanie. Good to be here. The 2024 election cycle is ramping up. We recently heard from candidates at the first GOP debate. One area they seemed to agree on was China or the China threat. Which candidate do you think laid out the strongest case when it comes to China and how the U.S. should deal with it? I think it's probably Vivica Ramaswamy. I think he was the, the most clear. And uh, DeSantis also had a, a, you know, a policy of, you know, an economic policy in terms of taxes and regulations. But I think Vivek Ramaswamy has the, has the best grasp on the relationship between China and the U.S. and China and its, and its, uh, its neighboring countries, especially India and, uh, and Taiwan. I don't agree with his, totally with his position on Taiwan, but he, at least he has laid it out in clear-cut terms. And James, switching gears a bit to the Democratic Party, RFK Jr. has been making headlines a lot. He recently said that when it comes to China, the Chinese cannot and do not want to compete with us militarily, suggesting that it's the U.S. pushing them in that direction. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's. I think he's dead wrong. I think China is. You know, there's a reason China's navy is larger than ours. It, it's not because they want to have great boat parades. It's because they want to compete with us first in the region, in the Asia-Pacific region, but they want to compete and protect their interests abroad. Remember, they have, they have ports uh, and uh, sea gates and waterways to protect across the, the world. So to say that they don't have any military aspirations in terms of competing with the U.S., I think it's just flat-out naive. It's, it's Bernie Sanders-level naive, and he's wrong. The RFK Jr. is, is, is dead wrong about that. 
And on top of that, he also went on to say that when it comes to China, quote, they don't want war, they want peace and they want prosperity and that cannot happen when there's a war. Your thoughts on that? Gosh, well, read the art of war. The, 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 the best way to have to gain um, all the fruits of war uh, is without having a war. That's the best way. And you do that by various tactics, whether it's importing fentanyl, um, whether it's taking your best talent through the you know, Confucian Institutes and the Thousand Talents programs, whether it's uh, buying up farmland in the U.S., um, prohibiting and controlling food supplies. There's all kinds of ways that China is at war with the U.S. So the fact that um, there's not a shooting war yet, they're certainly happy to incur, uh, you know, our seas, our sea lanes and our our airspace in Alaska with ships and planes and so forth. So I don't see any any real concrete way you can say that they're not in direct competition with us in every way that's possible. In fact, there was a book written in 1999 or I think it was by a couple of Chinese colonels, you know, you know unrestricted warfare. It's, it's the roadmap and it's the guidebook to doing so what they're doing right now. And James, given all that you just laid out when it comes to foreign policy in terms of China, how much is riding on who is in the Oval Office in the next term? I think everything's riding on it. Um, the, the fact is, is that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy had a terrific idea, which was very Trumpian, and that is, look, use the leverage you have in Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis the Russians and separate the Russians from China. Make it, you know, make it in the Russians' interest to cut themselves off or decouple from China, as it were, to some degree. Um, start using your lure of American power, American economics, you know, American, the, the American market and so forth, and our, our alliances worldwide. Start leveraging our assets instead of, instead of letting them wither away through bad policy or, or, uh, or just ignoring them. So it makes all the difference who's in, who's in power. And what's the message the U.S. needs to be sending China? It's the same message that Trump sent China. Look, you no longer get to compete in the world uh, on, on uh, unequivocal terms. We're going to compete with you everywhere. We're not going to compete with you economically, but we're going to compete with you culturally, militarily, and we're going to defend our allies. And that's very, very important because if you think about, you know, China's original or initial goal here is to dominate the Asian Pacific region. And it, it was a, a summer or so ago that. Japan, for the first time, released a defense white paper which linked Japan's security to Taiwan's. Now, the very fact that they would do that publicly, that tells the world, especially the U.S. defense establishment, we don't think you're entirely serious or capable of, of, of holding up your end of the security uh, agreements in, in, in this region. And so that was a very, very shot, loud shot across the bow saying, look, we have a big problem here with China, and you're not stepping up and uh, you know, providing all the assurances, you know, and capabilities needed to uh, enforce, enforce that uh, that regional agreement. And you know, Japan has one of the largest stockpile of uh, nuclear fissile material for a non-nuclear power. It's they have quite a bit of it, um, and they're restructuring their entire defense structure, uh, their posture towards uh, anticipating an aggression from China. So, it, it, it tremendous, tremendously, it matters tremendously, rather, who, uh, who's in power and what their policies are. James Gorey, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Happy Labor Day.
Coming up, masks to stop the spread of COVID-19. They're making a comeback in some places around the U.S. We bring you what Dr. Anthony Fauci says about their effectiveness. The American red wolf is almost extinct again. Hunters are giving the species a hard time. Conservationists are trying to revive the wild population, but landowners aren't happy. And housing affordability in the Golden State has hit another new low as single-family home prices continue to climb. A realtor shares details on why this is happening when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Texas Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton will face an impeachment trial tomorrow. He's accused of bribery, retaliation against whistleblowers and obstruction of justice. President Biden delivered his annual Labor Day speech to union workers in Philadelphia. He touted job creation under his own administration and took a shot at former President Trump's economic record. After speaking with Russian President Vladimir Putin, the Turkish president said the Black Sea grain deal could soon resume. Meanwhile, Ukraine's defense minister stepped down amid allegations of corruption during his leadership. Steve Harwell, the former frontman of the 90s rock band Smash Mouth, has passed away at the age of 56. He had been battling health issues for the past decade. Amid a slight uptick in COVID-19 hospitalizations, more and more places around the U.S. are bringing back masks. Dr. Anthony Fauci says he's worried people won't comply with mask recommendations. Here's a COVID update. Regions around the U.S. are advocating for the use of masks to stop the spread of COVID-19. That's amid a small rise in hospitalizations and a new variant called BA-286. CDC data shows that hospitalizations are on the rise. However, they're still much lower than they were in February of this year. New York City officials are now asking residents to mask up during Labor Day weekend. Morris Brown College in Atlanta imposed a two-week-long limitation on gatherings. Lionsgate Studios in Hollywood brought back mask mandates for some office spaces, and some hospitals are bringing back mask mandates. Former White House Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci told CNN he can't say how many more hospitalizations we'll see because of the new variant. He also says he's worried about people's response to masking recommendations. As you know, this is a very unpredictable virus. It's shown us that over the last three and a half years. I am concerned that people will not abide by recommendations. Fauci was then asked about a review published in late January at the Cochrane Library. It said there was no evidence to prove masks reduce the spread of COVID. Yeah, but there are other studies, Michael, that show at an individual level for individual. When you're talking about the effect on the epidemic or the pandemic as a whole, the data are less strong. He said on an individual level, masks can still help protect someone. As of right now, there are no federal mask mandates or recommendations in place. However, Fauci says he hopes that if recommendations do come back, that people will abide by them. Meanwhile, Dr. Deborah Burks, former White House COVID-19 response coordinator, talked about mandates in an interview with Newsmax. Four years in, 
we don't need to mandate. We need to actually empower people with the information that they need to, for themselves and their families because every family is different. While advising against mandates, Dr. Burks did praise COVID vaccines based on mRNA technology, which she says can help protect people. The red wolf only found in the U.S. is on the brink of extinction again. Next, we take a look at efforts to revive the species and what's behind some homeowners' resistance. NTD's Yuchi Shi has more. The American red wolf is once again near extinction. We can't see them, but based on the radio telemetry, there's six red wolves hunker down in there. Almost half of the population right now in this one spot, which is, you know, both interesting to think about, but also kind of sad to think about. Biologist Joe Madison says the red wolf was brought back from near extinction before, and they're trying to do it again through the Pray for the Pack program. The Pray for the Pack program is vital on private lands because wildlife doesn't understand boundaries. Biologist Luke Lollies oversees the program. He says the main goal is to allow homeowners to share their land with red wolves. Human shootings and human development are major factors in the population decline. And now we're introducing a hybrid predator. Despite the organization's efforts, there are signs the shootings may continue. If, if you do not get landowner cooperate, cooperation in a five-county area, will you stop the program? It is a legitimate question. I just can't be the one that can answer it for you. Well, we know, we all know what the answer is. Yeah. You just can't say it out loud. Homeowners don't like the idea of letting red wolves onto their property. Some fear they may prey on their livestock or pets. Others mistake them as coyotes. After three years, only four homeowners have signed up for the program. I had somebody say they would actually shoot a wolf in the gut so it would crawl off their property and die so they wouldn't get in trouble, which I was, that sickened me, really. Jeff Atkin is one of the four homeowners. He says the program involves planting plants that'll attract small mammals. Pray for the red wolves. Pray for the pack will then reimburse him for doing this. It's not nature that's taking the red wolf out. It's us. So we are the ones who help them get back. Red wolves used to inhabit much of the southeastern part of the U.S. Right now, they're estimated to only be a dozen left. Yuki Shi, NTD News. California's housing affordability hits a consecutive low, while single-family home prices continue their upward climb from last year. A realtor tells entities Christina Corona more on the housing market. California's housing affordability has hit a 16-year low as home prices reach sky-high values, turning the American dream into a challenging climb. Douglas Lee from Compass Real Estate says there are two main factors that have caused California's housing affordability to drop. The first one is in low interest rates, and the second one is low supply. So since um, 2000, since the implosion in 2002, the Fed has been cutting interest rates, and what that's done is with cheap money, it's spurred a lot of purchasing. Lee tells us which areas and types of homes are affected most by the affordability issue. At basically any area that's close to all the jobs, so if you're looking at areas that are driving distance to downtown LA, downtown San Diego, Orange County, San Francisco Bay Area, all the heavy job areas, those are the ones that are going to be a lot more heavily impacted by affordability. So basically getting into anything, a single family home, a condo, 
a townhome, just trying to get anything. He tells us real estate's only going to go one direction in California, and that's up. With high or low interest rates, the most important thing Lee suggests is to just get in. As long as you can commit to hitting those monthly payments, hell over high water, you're going to hold on to it long enough that when you sell, you'll make your money. And the average price for a single family home in 2023? The median price was around 863000 and the average was 995 and that's for a three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,200-square-foot minimum size home. Lee tells us how, for the first time in 2023, single-family home prices in California have surpassed those from a year ago. So when we talk about supply, I've been tracking the data, it's two months of inventory. A normal market is six, six months. If you have below six, it's a seller's market in which case this is, at two months, what that means is that if no new listings hit the market, it would take us two months until we sold everything else out. As home prices continue to climb compared to a year ago, California's housing affordability has taken a noticeable hit. However, there are resources and assistance programs available to help residents achieve their dream of home ownership. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. Coming up at the U.S. Open, could a major upset clear the way for an American to bring home the title? And a choir group in Australia brings a community together through song. The group gives members a sense of belonging and even saves lives. More in a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we welcome NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, college football essentially kicked off this past weekend. What was your biggest takeaway? Well, Colorado looked great. Now, I don't think anyone's really going to be surprised that Deion Sanders is doing a great job there. It's really how fast he's done it. I mean, they were 1-11 last year. They're already 1-0 this year. I remember even Nick Saban, when he took over to Alabama, he went just 7-6 and six his first season. He's won six national titles since. Sanders, though, was very smart about this. He basically turned over the entire roster, with the new, which you can basically do with the new transfer rules. Uh, so if they play like that, though, I think they can actually contend for a national title. And speaking of college sports, what do you see as the next domino falling in conference realignment? Well, I think the ACC, I think there's going to be some schools that are going to try to leave the ACC, uh, but there's some major legal hurdles for them to clear first. You know, the ACC's TV contract runs through 2036. Uh, so even if members try to leave, their TV rights don't come with them, which makes it, of course, very difficult. But this last month has shown there's quite a rift in, uh, in the conference. They're not happy at how far behind in revenue they are behind the SEC and the Big Ten. And both those conferences could be interested in some schools. That said, I don't think any, uh, any moves are going to be anytime soon unless someone has some kind of legal ace up their sleeve. And Dave, shifting gears to the U.S. Open, are you still confident of a Djokovic-Alcaraz final? Yes, but Djokovic had quite a close call on Friday. He actually dropped the first two sets and then actually then absolutely dominated for the final three sets. It was quite a performance. It was really like he just flipped the switch. 
Alcaraz, on the other hand, has dominated pretty much the whole way. He's only lost one set this whole time, but he has some tough possible matches coming up against maybe Yannick Sinner or maybe even Daniel Medvedev. I still think it's going to be Djokovic and Alcaraz for the title, and I think, I think Djokovic is going to win. And what about the women's side? It looks like it's opened up a bit with Iga Sviatek's loss, especially for some Americans. Yeah, I mean, Sviatek, she's the number one ranked player. She's a defending champion here, so that's certainly a big void. Uh, it certainly opens things up for some Americans. As you said, Coco Goff and Madison Keys. Keys beat Jessica Pagula earlier today. She's dropped just one set in these four rounds. I actually thought Goff was playing better when she came in to the tournament. She beat Sviatek last month in Cincinnati. I think both players have a great shot at bringing home the title. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. A choir is saving lives. It's in one of the fastest growing cities in Australia, and it's curing loneliness by bringing people together through song. NTD's Andrew Thomas tells me he can't sing, but he does have more on the story. At first, all is quiet at this choir practice in Geelong, Australia. But soon enough, cheerful singing brings the church to life. Choir member Jessica Walker has Asperger's and says the group allows her to be herself. I'm being me. I'm, I'm, I'm free to be me. Whereas outside in society, I feel like the pressure of having to be like everybody else. But I'm not like everybody else, which I'm proud of. Anastasia Warden joined the choir when she was just nine years old. The group has given her a sense of belonging. I grew up not really knowing what a family was, but when I'd come here at choir, I had my own kind of grandmother and I had my own kind of auntie and uncle, and it was just a really amazing feeling. Over the last decade, this choir has had a positive influence on many of its members. The group has even saved lives. Some have told me that uh, this is the, the one thing they can come out of their house for and often want the one thing that stopped them from actually uh, ending their life because they didn't have a sense of community, but here they feel part of a family, able to contribute a sense of ownership. That's true harmony. If you have any news, tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.